The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Squawkbox. Let's get into your headlines this hour. The ECB's Mario Draghi defends the central bank's latest round of easing and says the bank is ready to cut interest rates again, highlighting a manufacturing slowdown after German PMI comes in at its weakest in a decade. The longer the weakness in manufacturing persists, the greater the risk that other sectors of the economy will be affected by the slowdown. Incoming ECB President Christine Lagarde tells CNBC the trade war is the biggest obstacle to global growth. What concerns me at the moment is that trade, instead of being that sort of big window of opportunities for those economies that want to compete with each other, uh, it, it weighs like a big dark cloud on the global economy. The British Supreme Court prepares to rule on the lawfulness of Boris Johnson's decision to suspend Parliament. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister tells NBC News he wants a fresh nuclear deal with Iran and says Donald Trump is the guy to get it done. AB InBev raises $5 billion after pricing the revived IPO of its Asia business at the lower end of the range, less than it had hoped to raise in July, but still the second largest offering of the year. So let's start with Mario Draghi this morning. The ECB president has warned of a prolonged downturn in the euro area economy. In a speech before the European Parliament, the outgoing central bank chief backed the ECB's latest package of stimulus measures to protect against economic uncertainties. Draghi particularly defended the bank's move to lower interest rates to minus 0.5%. Lowering the deposit facility rate helps to further improve the borrowing conditions of households and businesses. Negative rates also encourage banks to lend to the real economy instead of holding on to liquidity, thus supporting the portfolio rebalancing channel of the asset purchase program. The impact of the cut in the deposit facility rate is reinforced by our strengthened forward guidance on the likely direction of our monetary policy in the future. Meanwhile, the incoming ECB chief, Christine Lagarde, has acknowledged the role of negative interest rates. Speaking to CNBC, she flagged concerns over some policy tools the central bank is using now compared to how things were when she began her tenure at the IMF in 2011. The situation has changed massively since those days. Uh, when you look at the financing costs, they are much, much lower now than they were in those days. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the strength of the financial uh, players and the, uh, the strength of the supervision, completely different, much uh, stronger, much more capitalized, uh, much better supervision, uh, better equipped as well. So on that front, it's, it's a lot, lot better. And I think there is that, uh, you know, risk um, apprehension, which also uh, comes into play. What is not as good as it was in those days 
it's the fiscal and the monetary space that the policymakers have. Because in those days, many, many, uh, you know, finance ministers had space, had room within which to inject stimulus. In the same vein, um, central bank governors had some leeway and some space uh, in terms of interest rates or in terms of quantitative easing, which was yet to be invented at the time. So different situation. And uh, we're probably better equipped on financial markets, but risks will come from somewhere where we don't anticipate them. I guess I'm just wondering, do you think it's possible for another European sovereign debt crisis to happen? You know, the, uh, if the euro area can, can strengthen, uh, and there are indications that this could be on the short-term horizon, with a real banking union, with a better uh, capital markets, which has euro area dimension and good depth. And if there is more of a joint effort to stir the economy of Europe, I think that that region of the world will be in, in good shape. So look, the accusation is there. Central banks have made a big, big mistake and created many more problems than they have solved. That's the accusation. That's not necessarily the fact. That's just one side of the equation. But we have got Nomi Prince with us as well, who is an author of the book Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. Nomi, really nice to see you. So I just laid out the briefest version of the accusations against central banks at the moment. Do you want to just fill in a bit more detail of what you think the rap sheet for central banks is at the moment? Good morning to you. <laughs> Good morning. Yes, it's a great day to be here. The, the the problems that central banks um, have, have caused and have been sort of discussed as causing uh, really relate to the fact that markets have, to a large extent, been inflated by central bank policy. Money's been cheap. It's gone into the banking sector. It's gone through the financing sector. It's gone into companies for buybacks. It's lifted uh, equities up and, to a large extent, bonds, bond yields, um, uh, bonds up as well, yields down. But the problem is it hasn't really seeped into the real economy. So what we're seeing now, this sort of reinvigoration of what uh, Mario Draghi is talking about, the ECB rates going even more negative, a restart of quantitative easing is basically an admission that the first time around hasn't really done what it was supposed to do for the main economy. And, and that's the main problem. So, so, so look, I think the narrative's changed from the central banks. First of all, I thought that their QE ones were about, let's just calm things down, everybody. There is a real GFC going on. Let's calm things down. And I think they succeeded yeah. in that. The second point was, we're going to buy you cover banks of the uh, uh, countries of the world, uh, balance sheets of the world, to re reform yourself, to restructure yourselves, to get fiscal space for us as well. We're buying you cover. Uh, and that never happened, part two. And now the, the mantra seems to be, well, we have the answer to creating liquidity for the world economy. So it's the narrative changing from the central banks that worries me the most. No, and I agree with you. At first, it was an emergency crisis situation, right? We had a financial crisis. Banks were illiquid. The Fed came in. The ECB came in. The Bank of Japan came in. They all came in together to effectively create liquidity for really the, the markets and the banking sector and hoped that that would filter into the real economy. There was a lag in, in fiscal policy. There was a lag in real economic building. In fact, what banks and, and, and the financial sector and speculators kind of did was hold on to that money and, and put it in places where it was easy to see it go up, right? So, so the most liquid places like the markets, it went up, it did fine. But because the plan wasn't there for the real economy, because now the real economy is struggling for other reasons too. I mean, there's, there are some reasons that the central banks might not have envisioned 11 years ago, like trade wars, um, like Brexit, like some of the other uncertainties that are going on. So maybe they didn't know that. 
but, but they haven't changed in terms of the ammunition that they want to use to fix these new problems that they haven't been able to fix going into this period. And that's the danger of right now. No, but you set out uh, the phase one and you talk about phase two and I feel like I've skipped right to the end of the book and looked at some of the conclusions and you come up with the fact that we could end up with greater price inflation on the ground, greater civil unrest and worse conditions for international investment. When we look at some of these factors, we're seeing a little bit more civil unrest. I mean, Hong Kong is a great version of demonstrations taking place, worse conditions for international investment, and very much the case on negative interest rates. But the greater price inflation story, when does that start to materialize? Because inflation still seems very elusive at this point. So, right. So the inflation story that, that I'm talking about in terms of a phase two of this evolution of, of central bank intervention and what's going on with the real economy and sort of real other problems is that it's, it's really the peripheral countries. So it's really the, the, the more emerging countries, the more developed, um, the countries that are more in their development stages than the main G7 and, 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 for example, China. Those were sort of phase one. And inflation didn't really increase in those countries. It, it, it increased in financial assets, but it didn't increase in terms of real pricing throughout the ground through many of those countries, and certainly throughout Europe, certainly throughout the U.S. and so forth. Where there's the risk of price inflation is to emerging market countries, because what's happening now is they, those central banks are in this quandary. Fed's going back into easing mode. ECB's going into more negative and QE. The Bank of Japan says it won't, but it will. All this stuff is going on, and they're like, okay, how do we keep up with this? It used to be about attracting foreign investment into our countries with higher rates. Now that's not happening because of the other uncertainties in the world. Money's coming back into the major countries. So now we need to lower rates to just function, but that's going to create more on-the-ground inflation in those countries than it would in the larger countries because they don't have that, that depth to absorb it in their markets. They absorb it in prices for their populations and for their real economies. A couple of countries with clear and present danger, Turkey, Argentina, those sorts of countries? Well, I mean, even, um, you know, we, we have things going on in the oil sector right now, but, but even Egypt, even Saudi Arabia, Sri Lanka, you know, you look throughout the Middle East and throughout Asia, um, yes, Brazil, um, even, even Mexico has been um, cutting its rates now in terms of trying to follow the Fed. So, so those countries are in more danger because the money there is more intrinsic to real prices for real goods on the ground there. Um, that it is when it's flowing about through the larger countries. Is there any other way out of this than for us to have a global recession that removes the weak hands and destroys some of the excess capacity that we have in the global economy, especially on the manufacturing side? Um, I think that goes back to this idea of not having planned um, how these economies could look with this additional liquidity coming into them over the years. We, we are in the beginnings of a recession. I think I even said the last uh, time I was on this show that we are actually already in a recession um, throughout Europe and we're looking at things going downward in the states and throughout the rest of the world and more deeply in the emerging countries. The way to fix that is really to ensure that there's planning with the liquidity that's coming in, with the additional um, government's uh, budgets that are being elevated in order to handle these weakening economies, really going into manufacturing, really going into um, the lending into real people and to small businesses that Draghi, for example, is talking about will happen, but they're not making it happen. They're not creating sort of a channel by which that money should go to real businesses, the real economy and manufacturing. They're just hoping that by increasing liquidity, it will get there. So I do think you need tighter coordination um, with respect to where that liquidity is coming from and where it's going and not just sort of, you know, talking about it. Yeah. Um, a controversial question, I guess, but is it perhaps time to revisit the idea of central bank independence? Because in the old days, of course, you had monetary and fiscal policy which was managed by a government and went hand in fist. 
Now, of course, we have central bank independence and this clarion call that governments should be acting fiscally. But of course, they've sat back rather and they've let the central banks do the job because as far as they're concerned, that gets them off the hook politically. So do we need to revisit this whole idea of the independence of central banks and how that's managed? Yeah, no, I I agree. Governments have been allowed it through conversation about this for the past over a decade that they should be doing something. But they're looking at, look, we have cheap money. We are able to issue debt at lower or negative interest rates. So we can kick this sort of problem of whether economies grow or don't grow on the ground down the road because it's cheap for us to basically finance our economy through zero interest rate or negative interest rate debt. Um, and, And so central banks should be more independent, but also governments should do their job. If this liquidity is coming in, if it's happening, if the central banks are making these decisions to sort of, uh, you know, basically create cover for themselves as well as for the governments um, with which they operate or in, you know, whose realm they operate, then governments really do need to step up and or work together with central banks, but at least with a plan that says, all right, this liquidity's in, our debt's increasing, our public debt, our corporate debt, everything else. Now we need to actually have a real plan um, of, of how to use it so that we don't have another recession now in five years, in 10 years, and keep this whole monetary system going as it is. Okay, we're going to come back to this in just a moment. Nomi, thanks so much for that. You're going to stay with us, so we'll pick up the conversation in just a moment. Nomi Prinz, author of Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. Also on the program this morning, President Trump challenges his Treasury Secretary over China's cancelled visit to a U.S. farm. We'll have more on that story when we come back. And if you just can't get enough of Squawkbox, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshan, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. U.S. markets, as you can see, struggled for direction yesterday. And I think this is the thematic at the moment. There's not really apparent to all of us out there much progress on the trade situation between China and U.S. at the moment. One minute we think we're going to get a bit of a partial deal. Next minute people are saying, yeah, the whole lot could be after the 2020 election. So there's no catalyst on that front at the moment. There's no catalyst coming from the earnings because we don't actually have the earnings season in full force at the moment. We don't have any political catalysts as well. Again, uh, issues such as Brexit as well, just bumbling along as well, although we've got a very important 10.30 local time London uh, Supreme Court ruling on Boris Johnson's prorogation of parliament today. So there's no catalyst there. So is it coming from the data? Well, the data yesterday in the US was respectable, if not spectacular. Uh, Composite PMIs, uh, the manufacturing was up to 51. The services sector up to 50.9. So they were moving in the right direction, but there was no stellar big move there as well. So are the dollar crosses uh, giving us any directions? Well, well, no, not really. Look at that. The euro dollar is really, really calm. And I'll come back to that in a second. 
pound. Jolly yen, I'll just tell you, 107.61. The pound off its lows by around about six cents, but 124.31 as well. A quick look at the commodities as well. Gold had a very good day yesterday, one of its best days uh, of the year. Just giving back a little bit of ground there, 0.15%, but up to 15.20, give or take the change. Uh, and you can see WTI and Brent crude both trading down a half of 1%. Asian indices look like this. So we have uh, well, mildly positive bias to it with the Cosby up uh, 0.28 of 1%. Right, now let's get to the opening calls for European markets because this is the point I want to talk about in terms of catalysts. It's very rare that in our headlines for today, we talk about something that happened in our show yesterday. We tried to be forward looking or at least fill in the gaps since our show finishes at 9 GMT uh, and then the 24 hours intervening or 21 hours from the start. But look at this. Zetradax did something very interesting. And this is very interesting for the conversation that Jeff and Karen and Nomi have just been having and are still having at the desk here as well. The Zetradax yesterday did something very strange. It fell on the back of bad data. Yeah, we had this manufacturing PMI, which was the lowest since 2009 and got down to 41.4. So the Zetradax fell 1% on bad data. Now I hear you guys saying, well, of course it'll fall on bad data. But the fact, and if Jeff could listen to me for half a second, because this is the point I was trying to make, the Zetradax, and Nomi, this one's for you as well. The Zetradax fell on bad data yesterday. Oh. That is old school. That's yes. like Goldman Sachs era. That's when I was yeah. at Climbers or something. Or these two were doing whatever they were doing. But the fact of the matter is, markets don't often fall on bad data these days right. because of what we've been saying right. about the, the way the central banks jump in. So my question, and I know I've kind of just a little bit naughty here. My question is, is the market realising that actually we're done? Central bank action now is kind of like we may be at the end of this process. Maybe there's a dawning realisation happening, Nomi. You know, the markets don't really care about time. I mean, I think that, that's, that's, that's the ultimate realization here that we have to come to. So that when, when PMI figures are, are down and the markets, you know, at first react negatively, which is so old school. And, and that's what we saw here. But then, you know, the U.S. markets kind of opened negative and then they popped kind of back up. Why? Because somewhere along the lines of all of that thought of old school is the fact that we will still get cheap liquidity. And as long as we get cheap liquidity and can move it into markets, that's going to override the, the short term, like super short term, what can happen, which is why the markets are up today in Europe, because ultimately um, there is a sense that new money is going to come in right now. And, and, and it's being confirmed. But, but what's interesting is, is there's been a shift in the way certain asset classes have been behaving. And you look at the dollar-gold relationship, and gold has not been doing what it's supposed to <clears throat> on days when you've got a stronger dollar, which tells you that there are still buyers who are accumulating gold and other precious metals. Silver has perked up an awful lot. Platinum has perked up an awful lot. So somebody in the market or some people in the market are actually building themselves defensive portfolios, even as the air seems to be thinning out a little on these market rises. And two things, it seems to me, have changed. One is people always get worried when you begin to see a re-steepening of the yield curve because that's an arbiter of recession on its way. And the other thing that's happened, I think, is that we've had a shift in the trend on interest rates from the world's largest central bank. As long as you believe that rates could begin going up, then the bank was telling you everything's going to be okay in the world. Now that they're talking about cutting and 
possibly cutting a couple more times at the next few meetings and expanding the balance sheet again, isn't that sending a message that actually the fire is not under control and we need to keep pouring water on it at some point? Yeah, and I think that's what the, that's the message that they, they want to send because otherwise they're paralyzed. They, they can't do anything. They can't cut rates as they're doing. They can't talk about globally cutting rates as they're doing, and that's part of the problem. So what gold used to be a sort of sign for is, is kind of an inflation hedge and, and, and sort of you know that, that idea of it. And now it's become an uncertainty hedge. Um, and so now one of the extra reasons that gold has been rising and that sort of precious metals have been rising is because of things like trade tensions, because of things like um, a, a difficulty in seeing the path towards economic strength because of what's going on a prolonged economic strength. So we have a kind of recessionary thing. We have central banks going back in to basically a platform and monetary policy that hasn't really gotten any economy off to a kickstart at the ground level or something that's sustainable. And you have additional uncertainty um, into those markets from respect to in particular trade wars and how ultimately uh, that drives manufacturing, that drives services, that drives all sorts of things across the world. So you have all of that, which is one of the reasons why you have metals and gold going up. Um, but you also have the central banks coming back in and saying, we just don't know what else to do. I mean, if, if we raise rates, it's just going to create a lot of like negative mm. feeling. And that's going to ultimately first reflect in the markets because liquidity could be tightened. And that's going to reflect badly on us and all of the policies we've instilled for the last 11 years. We literally don't know what else to do. So I had a different takeaway message from some of the data yesterday, and this goes to the point about policymakers trapping themselves in knots. So effectively, when that data point crossed from Germany, uh, the 41.4% for the preliminary uh, manufacturing read-in and also weakness across the composite number, it felt as though the market just gave up because they'd been served up plenty from the ECB last week, uh, plenty of stimulus measures coming, negative reaction, of course, from many of those German savers. On top of that, you saw a climate change package that had to be sold as a balanced budget initiative for some reason still in Germany, yet it just confused business. So this is a major reform that should possibly have been good for fiscal stimulus. Your business stepped back and went, I'm too confused. So the messaging for me was that you've got too much uncertainty out there, whether it's trade wars and everything else going on with central banks, that structural reforms are almost impossible at this point because they're going to further complicate the issue for these economies. And that's a problem in my book. No, no, I, I, I agree with that. And that's one of the reasons that ultimately, um, you know, the markets go down on things like uncertainty and then they pop back up on things like extra stimulus. And that's where we have the sort of volatility, which also creates in general, um, you know, a sense of uncertainty going forward. And that, that is what's happening. So if you're, if you're, you know, say an energy company and you're trying to figure out how to go into, say, green energy and you've got two things going on and you're looking at financing coming in, let's say, at a cheap level, so that's good. Um, but then you look at, you know, maybe some sort of fiscal package, which should also be good. But then you're looking at general trade wars and how that could potentially mix to come out into the real world. And you're like, wait a minute, I can't really do a strategy right now because I just don't even know what's going on. And and I think that it, that that's a problem ultimately with economies throughout the world is if if companies don't know what they're supposed to be doing, then it's hard to even push for new measures at the fiscal level from behind the scenes in order to get them done. And that's where the sort of more paralysis comes in. And again, into that, central banks are trying to figure out how to at least keep the engine running. 
Which puts into context the problems potentially of a trade war where everybody knows that we need to have structural reforms happening across economies. Nomi, thank you very much. We'll pick up on that in just a moment. I want to get into some of the background around trade. In the past 24 hours, as President Donald Trump has questioned Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin over a cancelled visit by China's trade delegation to a farm last week. In an exchange during a meeting at the United Nations, the president appeared surprised when Mnuchin said the cancellation was at America's request. They have started buying agriculture. They're going to reschedule that at a different time. The timing didn't work, uh, but that was that was purely our request. Why was that our request? Just out of curiosity. Uh, we, did, we didn't want confusion around the trade. Yeah, but I want them to buy farm products. They, there was no confusion. We want them to buy agriculture. <laughs> they committed to buy agriculture. They've committed to buy a lot of agriculture and they're going to start and they've started and we should get them over there as soon as possible. I feel like a fly on the wall watching that conversation, even though it was meant to be very public with cameras there. Surely you can't afford to fire Stephen Mnuchin, though, at this point. <laughs> Clearly. Incoming ECB President Christine Lagarde has told CNBC the US-China trade war is the biggest threat to the global economy. What concerns me at the moment is that trade, instead of being that sort of big window of opportunities for those economies that want to compete with each other. Uh, it, it weighs like a big dark cloud on the global economy. And based on the latest calculation of the, of the IMF, uh, if the tariffs that are either here already are threatened to be applied were to apply, we're talking about reducing global growth by 0.8%. That's a massive number. Uh, you know, growth forecast for next year is 3.5%. You take out 0.8. That hurts. It's fewer jobs. It's less business going on. It's less investment. It's more uncertainty. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.